Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Hold the Line. I'm surrounded by deeply sleeping dogs, the sort of deep sleep that happens when dogs are really exhausted. And just comatose as a result of that. I kind of like this. It's almost worth schlepping them off to some new place, which at the moment is pretty easy because we're surrounded by new places. New places are very exciting and every place is a new place at the moment because we've moved house. So everywhere I take them is pretty much a new place, which, by the way, is not necessarily a great thing for me because I don't know what's around the corner any more than they do. And so we have come a cropper of a few things <laughs> recently, um, notably pens and recently released birds. <laughs> but we won't go into that too much. Or maybe we will later in this podcast because it might be useful and interesting. Um, anyway, we have now moved. I am sitting in our new house. Well, it's not new because it was built in 1620, we think. It has staggeringly low door frames, actually literally staggeringly low because (laughs) that's what we do after we hit our heads on them. Um, And you'd think, wouldn't you, that after maybe having hit our heads 15 or 20 times on these door frames, we might have learned to duck. You know, maybe that just shows us how complete ineffective positive punishment is because we still are hitting our heads on the door frames. Anyway, let's not go into that too much. So there is a discount code I want to give you all because it's the end of the summer and well, actually, here it's the end of the summer. It might not be the end of the summer where you live, but here it's the end of the summer. So the discount code is end of summer and the number 30 because it's 30% off. So it's end of summer 30. And if you go to my website, forcefreegundog.com, you can get 30% off any course on the website. And that is until I think it's the 9th of September. But don't leave it to last minute because of time zone differences. I strongly encourage you not to leave it until the 9th of September because you might just get cut off there. So do it a day or two before that at the latest. Anyway, let's get on with the show. I've had lots of questions coming in recently, so I'm really looking forward to tackling some of those. Let's get started. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Prevention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Okay, so my first question I'm going to read here is from Jackie. So... Jackie says, Hi Joe, I've listened to your podcast for a while and really enjoyed learning from it, your online courses and a workshop on FDSA. I'm not trying to start stuff, but I'm just curious about your perspective on something. I've recently consumed some gundog content, both from folks here in the US and in the UK, who want to train more kindly or who find e-collars to be too harsh, unnecessary, lazy or even ugly. Weird reason. Anyway, these trainers went on at length about how awful e-collars or force fetch is, and then turned around and went off on bribery training and how awful treats are. I guess my question is just, 
what in the world is going on? How did Gundog Sports get here, where it seems like any Lima or force-free folks are hiding underground practically? And even if you find a trainer who talks about being kind or more patient with the dog, they might still turn around and start talking about how mother dogs correct puppies and advising you to do that. Especially for new people, what is the best way to interact with this world? Take the good advice and chuck the bad without pissing everyone off and even being able to distinguish good versus bad advice. For example, some of the US-based trainers encourage letting puppies be puppies, which sounds great. Until you realise the way they stop dogs being crazy is by using an e-collar and now your dog is nuts. So... Jackie, I know that you think that this is a poor state of affairs and I'd have to agree with you there. But I also have to say that when I first got involved in Gundog stuff, which was, I don't know, something like 15 years ago or something like that now, it was a lot worse. Like, <laughs> at least there are people like me and I'm definitely not, um, how did you put it, hiding in, what, hiding in the undergrowth? Hiding underground, practically. <laughs> I'm definitely not hiding underground here um, with this podcast. Um, and you know, there are more people out there that you can follow. There are more trainers writing stuff which is useful for force-free gundog people than there were 14, 15 years ago. So it's a lot better than it was. And we can only hope that in sort of 15 years into the future, we'll be a lot better all over again. So that's the first thing to say. Things are getting better. The second thing that I would say is that you have to do your due diligence. And when you're talking about a sport like gundog stuff, then you have to do more due diligence. You have to do this whatever dog sport it is that you're interested in because, you know, you just can't rock up at a class with your dog and not really know anything about the people running the class and assume that everything will be okay. I have to tell you a little story that, you know, once with my first dog, who was a Weimaraner called Slate, um, she was a little puppy and I took her along to a, um, a ring craft class, which was local to me at the time. And um, Slate, like all Weimaraners, was not great on the lead. And she was a tiny little puppy. And, you know, she, well, I say she was a tiny little puppy. She was probably about 16 weeks, 20, maybe 20 weeks, something like that. And we were practicing doing the sort of running up and down, running the dog up and down on the, um, whatever it's called. You know, I don't do show stuff, guys. Anyway, we were practicing that. <laughs> um, and um, Slate kept trying to pull in front of me and get in front of me all the time instead of running at my side. And so this was the first problem. This was the first thing that, that I did wrong, which was to go to this class, not having done any research, not knowing anything about the people running the class and where I couldn't do the behavior very well. Well, I was new to the behavior as well. So what happened was that the person running the class came up and took Slate off me. And so I was sitting in one of the chairs around around the ring and the trainer started to run up and down, run with Slate. Now Slate would see me sitting in the chair and she would try to run to me because I was her attachment figure. I was her source of safety. And every time she tried to run to me, she would get out of um, position by this person's side and the trainer would jerk her on the leash. And so this basically tore my heart apart into multiple small pieces and smashed it on the floor because I could see my puppy trying to get to me and perceiving me as safety. And every time she tried to get to me, she just got punished for trying to get to me. So in my defense, though, I did stand up, walk up to this woman in front of the whole class, say, please give me my puppy back, took the leash back from this woman and said, I'm leaving and I'm never coming back. Um, please don't treat my puppy or any puppies like that ever again. I left the class and walked out. And there was a round of applause from everybody else who was sitting there watching this happening, although they remained in the class. Um, I kind of wish I'd been a fly on the wall and seen what the fallout of that was. But anyway, um, so I left that class. Now, 
those are the things that that happened. That's the reason that that happened to my dog is that I didn't do enough research into the class and I didn't understand or know anything about the people who were running the class and the methods that they were going to use. And I also didn't know how to do the behavior at all myself. I hadn't learned how to um, show Slate, as it were, before going uh, to a traditional ring ringcraft class. So all of this is still relevant to Gundog work. So whilst we're talking about Gundog work here, I'd say this is not this this type of thing is not specific to Gundog stuff. It happens in other dog sports as well. It does perhaps these days especially happen more um, Gundog in Gundog circles, just because Gundog stuff is a little bit behind all the other dog sports. But but it does happen in other dog sports, as that story shows you. So just like me with Slate, um, if you're going to go along, that is Ren shaking herself in the background. If you're going to go along to a, a Gundog class, now she's going to dig loudly on her bed. Um, Ren, I'm trying to record a podcast episode here. Can you not do that? Thank you very much. Um, all right. So if you're going to go along to a, a Gundog training class, um, it's important that you firstly find out who's running the class and what methods they're going to use. And, you know, if they're affiliated with some force-free positive reinforcement um, organization, and we're not going to get into what those would be because they're going to differ depending on where you live in the world geographically, but you can do some research and find out what they are. Now, if someone is affiliated to any of those organizations, they're not going to use any punishment or aversives. So that's one, you know, surefire way to make sure that that's not going to happen to your dog. If that's not the case, and sometimes it's not, you can just go along and watch without your dog. And that's the other thing that I didn't do for this particular class. I did do it for a lot of other classes with with, um, Slate, but for some reason I got a bit lazy at this point, or maybe a a little bit keen to just come along and, um, you know, with the dog and not just watch before bringing her. So if you're not sure about what the methods are going to be at at any training organization or class, go along and watch without your dog. Just say, you know, you're new to all of this. You'd like to come along and watch without bringing your dog. And, you know, I've actually never heard of of anyone being turned away or very, very rarely heard of anyone being turned away from when when they've asked to come and watch without their dog. And there are so many advantages to doing this because you will learn a lot from watching without your dog and usually for free as well. So you will be able to concentrate better on the information which is being given out to people because you don't have your dog to distract you. And you'll also be able to learn from watching multiple different people with different learning styles and multiple different dogs who are also different individually as well and how they learn a particular task. So you will learn so much from watching and that's just besides being able to figure out whether it's a force-free positive reinforcement class. So that's the other thing that I would say, go and watch. And the next thing to say is don't hand the leash of your dog over to anyone else. That's the next thing that I did wrong. Um, Just say, no, I'd rather that you don't do that or I learn better if I do it for myself or, you know, just find some, try to find some nice way to not let that happen. By nice, I mean uh, a way which is not going to destroy your relationship with the person who's asking for the leash. And, you know, if they really insist on taking the dog from you, just say, no, that's not, no, that's, you know, I've had bad experiences in the past or something just general like that. And just, just continue to refuse it. Um, And that would be my advice as well, because once you give that leash to the trainer, you don't have any control over what's going to happen to your dog in those moments. And you will feel like I did with your heart smashed into thousands of small pieces as something horrible is done to your dog in front of you. So that was my next tip on that, on that front. So 
By the way, the good thing that I did do is stand up for my dog when this happened and take my dog away from the trainer in a situation of huge social pressure and in front of lots of people. So I'm very proud of myself for that bit, um, but not for the bits before that led up to that. So, um, yes. So anyway, the other thing I'd say about gundog stuff, though, is that there are lots of reasons that people get involved in gundog work. So some people just like hanging out with other people outside and doing some kind of, you know, healthy outdoor activity with others at the weekend. And they're not necessarily there for the dog training side of things. They're there just for human social interaction or because they like to walk outside and, you know, beat or something. Um, or maybe they, they like shooting. Some people just like the gun side of things and they like shooting and the dog is kind of an accessory to the gun side of things. So there are lots of different reasons that people get involved in all of this. And it's not necessarily with the dog at the forefront and dog training as a number one priority. So sometimes a dog is more of a tool or an accessory to the sport. And that's a little bit different to everything, you know, all other dog sports like agility or obedience or working trials or whatever. It's a little bit different there. There are not all these so many other very different reasons that someone might get involved. And, you know, the dog there be, is not going to be an accessory in agility, for example. It is going to be the, the the centerpiece for everyone who's doing agility. So it's a little bit it's a little bit different on that side of things too. Um so I kind of hope that I have answered some of your questions there. Um and you know as for the the trainers who um sort of dissed e-collars and force fetch and then also dissed quote bribery training, well you know I mean I feel like I'm just kind of respond answering that and you probably know this but um on a basic level, there's only the carrot or the stick, isn't there? So if you're not going to use the stick and then you're also not going to use the carrot, you're not going to have anything to motivate your dog to do anything. So <laughs> um, it's but using the carrot, as it were, or treats is not bribery. Um, it's reinforcement. So, you know, we can pick apart what these people said, but you know, as well as I do, the, the ways in which it's flawed. Um, and the thing is, the the underlying thing you're saying is that these people don't know much about learning theory and how to train a dog, um, how to use motivation to train a dog. And you just got to look around and find trainers who understand that and keep looking because they're out there. And if you can't find them geographically near you, you can find them online <clears throat> and take online courses <clears throat> with them. Um, so, you know, you definitely can get there. And, you know, the other bit which I haven't picked up on here is that I didn't train Slate, my Vimerana, to do, um, I don't know what to call it, um, to be shown, to do Ringcraft stuff before I rocked up at a Ringcraft class, you know. And as I've said before, um, just get all those basics under your belt before you go to a a Gundog class. Because if you turn up at a Gundog class and your dog can already walk at heel, sit, do a sit, stay, recall reliably, then you've got a dog that's under basic control and focused on you, then you're just going to, you're just going to be less likely to be one of those people who is um, seen to be struggling. And it's the people who are seen to be struggling that unfortunately get their dogs taken off them and have their dogs corrected, quote unquote, in front of them. Um, so don't be one of those people. Go to general good general pet dog training classes before you even, you know, dip your toes into gun dog stuff and make sure that you've got a dog which is focused on you and responsive to you before you start to get involved in the gun dog side of things. Um, and that way you're going to look like someone who's competent, capable um, and a decent dog trainer when you do go along to a, a gun dog class. I hope that answers your questions. Um, I think for someone like me, it's it's probably... 
It's easy for me to forget how hard it is to orientate yourself when you're starting out because, you know, I know what to look for now, but I've kind of learned it the hard way. (laughs) Um, So those are some of my tips for other people who are starting out and it is much easier now to do it. And, you know, we're not hiding underground. We are here, but there is definitely a kind of a split um, and a schism, I think, between um, conventional, traditional gundog folks and the force free gundog folks that there's more of a split there than there probably is in many other dog sports and yeah um i'm not sure what to say about that my approach to that is to to train your dogs in the way that you want to train your dogs and let their success be seen by others so that it will be seen that the methods work and this is a long-term approach it's not going to be an overnight thing It's going to take a big growing community of people chipping away at it slowly and that is the best way to do it. I don't think confronting people face on, head on with um, in a sort of aggressive way is going to help. And I also think that there is a lot of knowledge and information which the traditional gundog people have, which we don't want to lose. And there are a lot of things that they do, particularly when it comes to the hunting side of things, to what we might call field craft. So understanding how to use the wind, understanding uh, what your dog is telling you through their body language and through their movements um, and just all of that stuff, which which we can learn from them and which is which which many of them have deep, deep knowledge in. And so I don't think it's helpful if the sort of schism is a is is one which takes us into two completely separate um, camps, as it were. I'm always trying to bridge these two camps so that we can kind of keep the dialogue going and make the conversation not be a conversation which is too aggressive or confrontational or impassioned or alienating. But I'm trying to bridge these these two fields. I think um, from the perspective of the other camp, of the traditional trainers, what we need to do is to demonstrate that our methods are effective and that they work because that's what most of them are concerned about. And if we can do that, then there's not really much of a reason not to use positive reinforcement, to be honest, because I think everybody agrees that it is more enjoyable for the dog and probably arguably for the handler as well. So if we can also prove that it works and it's effective, then, you know, we're on a, a winning kind of argument there, really. So Let's just, you know, try and do that. And then that's going to speak for itself much louder than any number of um, fights or arguments or, you know, trying to persuade people (laughs) um, does. So actions speak louder than words. Anyway, I think I'm kind of waffling now, but let's so let's go on to the next question. Okay, so the next question is from Eva. So Eva's email is quite long. I'm just going to read out, I think, the two paragraphs which are most relevant. So Eva says, Hi, Joe, I've been listening to your podcast Hold the Line this summer, and I think that I'm now on episode 60 something. Yes, binge listening. Well, as we're now on episode 91, Eva, um, you might have to catch up before you get to this one. You might just have to skip ahead, actually, so that you get this information, because otherwise you'll be waiting. I don't know how long it's going to take you for the next 30 episodes. Um, anyway, I have a question that might be relevant to other listeners. Or you might already have covered this in one of the episodes that I still haven't listened to. (laughs) Eva says, we have a 16-month-old wirehead Vorstet male dog named Otto. He came to us from Turkey, we live in Iceland, when he was seven months old. He has already started some force-free training and learning with us. But from now, we are starting to focus on his gundog training. 
and it will be force free. After listening to your podcast, I realized that one of our challenges is that he was introduced to game at a young age before he came to us. We know that this will probably be a challenge as force-free gundog training does not recommend introducing them to game this young, but we are still going to train him force-free, even if it might take longer time to train him and manage him around game. Any thoughts or recommendations from you will be highly appreciated. And then there's a little paragraph later on where Eva says, In our training so far, Otto has been successful mostly in recall, steady, heel work, loose lead walking, leave that, not go there, sit, and more basic things like that. I use a lot look at me to get him to focus on me, and that has been very useful in many situations. We do some training every day. We have also unknowingly created some challenges, such as a keep away problem, and he understands the stop whistle as come to me. We also have a chase problem with sheep. So I'm going to try and respond to some of these things here. So, um, yeah, so let's let's respond to the idea of introducing young dog to game and um, what what you might be able to do in that situation now that you have the dog that that has happened to. Um, so your chase problem with sheep is probably going to be related to that because he's probably going to have developed this sort of prey drive, this idea of um, going out into the environment and finding things to chase as a result of that early introduction to to game. But the other side of this is not just what the dog has learned is is reinforcing in terms of the environment and environmental reinforcers like game. It's also the fact that what, what they haven't had experience and, and time to learn at a young age, which is how to learn that you, the handler, are reinforcing, that you have the treats, that you have the toys, that you are the person to pay attention to in the presence of distraction. So they haven't they haven't had a history of that. And that's the bit that's missing. So it's not just that they have learned something that you wish they hadn't. It's that there's this kind of gap, this thing that they haven't learned. They haven't had an opportunity to learn. And whilst you can try to teach them that now, which you are doing, and that's great, to some extent, it's not going to, in many cases, be as effective as it would have been if they'd learned that when they were young. Because the things that dogs learn when they're young, the things that they first learn, the things that they first learn are reinforcing, have a much greater impact on the dog than things that might come along much later down the line. Um, so, so yeah, that's why it's so important to do this training early on, the positive reinforcement and the kind of teaching the dog that you are the provider of the good stuff as it were, to put it basically. So, so, but yeah, there's lots of good stuff that you can do and that it sounds like you are doing. So well done. Just keep going with all of that. It's, it's, you know, baby steps. So, you know, think about, don't think about the end result we eventually want to get to. Just think about trying to make things a little bit better than, than it was the day before. You know, that's kind of splitting for trainers, the your learning as much as for the dog's learning. So, um, yeah, so let's, let's have a look at some of the things you're having problems with. So blah, 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 keep away problem. So that would be the clicker retrieve. The clicker retrieve course will fix your keep away problem. Um, it's it's excellent for that to the point that it's actually if I have a dog which is resource guarding, for example, um, the first steps of the clicker retrieve are the way to fix the resource guarding problem in my eyes. I haven't found anything which works better than that. And I've looked at lo- loads of other methods and always come back to the clicker retrieve as a way to fix resource guarding. So um, keep away is like the first rung on the ladder, as it were, to to resource guarding. And so th- it's equally effectively um, addressed by the clicker retrieve. So, and understanding the stop whistle has come to me, you know, that's just kind of a problem with, with your training really. So it sounds like 
he just thinks that any whistle noise means the same thing. So you've got to teach him how to discriminate the cues and how to understand, you know, this is a recall whistle and this is a sit whistle and how to understand they, they have different meanings. So you might want to, for example, not try and teach these two whistle cues too close together. If you try and teach them at the same time, there's a greater chance that the dog is going to get them confused. So I usually recommend that people focus on the recall whistle and really consolidate that and really make sure the dog understands that before they start to work on the stop whistle. But I also recommend, um, so there's a course on my site called the remote stop, which is basically the stop whistle. And the way that I train the remote stop is by getting the stop first. So there's no whistle involved at, at first. That, this is why I like to do it um, using capturing. So we capture the times when the dog or puppy is still. So when the dog or puppy stops still on all four pe- feet, sorry, uh, still on the floor, that's when we click and we throw the treat to them. So there isn't a whistle cue for them to fail to respond to. So we don't ever attach the whistle cue to the wrong behavior. So what one of the things which I find really difficult in the scenario that you described there, the dog understanding the stop whistle has come to me, is that the dog really believes that the stop whistle is a recall whistle. And they come to you thinking that they've they've done the right thing and they're going to get a treat. And then you don't give them a treat. And that's really tough. It's really it's really tough for the dog to believe that they're going to get reinforced and then not to get that reinforcer. That's really, um, it's punishing really. And there is a way that it could actually affect your recalls. It could make the dog not come when you do recall whistle them because they think, oh, there's just that whistle noise again. But, you know, I came last time and they didn't give me anything, so I'm not going to come this time. So it can actually cause your recall to deteriorate. So, This is why I like to take out the whistle from the remote stop behavior and just to have a stop without a whistle to begin with. And then once the stop is happening fluently, then we attach the whistle to it. And that way there's no risk that the wrong behavior is going to happen. And we just avoid this whole scenario, which you've described here, Eva. So check out my course, um, The Remote Stop, on my website because that covers that problem. And with the trace problem with sheep, that's really a recall problem. So whenever people have, or, it's, or, it's, or remote stop problem, one or the other, whenever people have a chase problem, whether it's with sheep, whether it's with birds, whether it's with deer, whatever it is, that's actually not a chase problem. That is a recall or remote stop failure. So if you had a functioning recall, your dog would start to chase sheep or show interest in sheep, you'd recall the dog would come. If, I don't know, a rabbit got up and your dog started to chase you, blow your sit whistle, the dog would sit. So so these aren't chasing problems. These are problems with your recall. They're problems with your remote stop. And those are the behaviors that you need to turn to to, to try to um, help train those. So I hope that helps and gives you some tips. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think my main advice for you would be not to have the end goal in sight too much, but just try to build each day and try to think about very small successes because then you will feel better about your training instead of having a sort of end goal of a perfectly trained dog. So just take it in baby steps and remember that long line. That's really important, especially with chasing problems. Um, So you need to be able to prevent the behavior. So if you do have one of these dogs who has a history of doing something that you don't want them to do, like chasing, then you need to be able to prevent that. It's not enough just to use your treats and use your toys, because if you gave the dog a choice of would you like treats, would you like toys or would you like to chase sheep? and the dog chooses to chase sheep, you can't do much about that. So you have to be able to take one of the choices off the table. And the way to do that is with your long line. So that's chasing is no longer a choice. Um, There are these other choices. Which of these other choices would you like? So um, those are my thoughts. 
Um, for that question, hold the line. Okay, so the next question is from Belinda, who says, "Hi, I'm thinking about entering my one-year-old dog in a simple test. His hunting is good, but I'm concerned that there will be a significant amount of standing around and other dogs he can't play with. When he is frustrated or bored, he tends to bark." He's not reactive, but again, if he's not allowed to play with a nearby dog, he tends to bark and lunge at it. I know this behaviour is unacceptable to other competitors and myself, but I'm wondering what I can do to help him be less annoyed about being still. Thanks. So, Belinda, I mean, well, the first thing that I would say is that sometimes it's very easy to get ourselves worked up into, and I, I, I say this as someone who does get herself worked up, um, it's very easy to to think about scenarios in the future and anticipate what might happen and end up creating worst case scenarios. So what it might be a good idea to do is to see how it goes. So a test is, you know, it's not a field trial. You're not taking a place which, um, you know, there's not only like 12 dogs that can have a run or something. I mean, I think it's legitimate for you to go along and to have a go and to see how your dog copes in the situation. So that's the first thing that I would say. And it may be that your worst your worst fears are realized, in which case you can go away and do some work on that. And it may be that your dog is not, you know, it's not as effective as you as you might think. Or you may come up with ways that you can help your dog manage the situation, which is, you know, I'm going to suggest some of those in a minute. Um, but to some extent, in order to understand, to fully understand how your dog is going to respond in the situation, you kind of do have to be in the situation or in a very similar situation. So if not going to a test, perhaps going to a training class where there will be other dogs standing around um, and where it will be a very similar situation so that you can see how your dog is going to react. Maybe you have been to a training class like that. I don't know. Um, so that's the first thing that I would say. The next thing that I would say is that there isn't actually, I mean, you don't say which country you're in. So I'm going to assume that you're in the UK. Okay. So um, if you're not in the UK, <laughs> you might want to ignore some of what I'm about to say. But in the UK, there's actually nothing about um, not using treats. Do not use treats when you are under the judge, of course. But if you are talking about standing around waiting for your turn to run in a test, there's nothing which says that you can't use treats at those times. You may not want to use them too close to other dogs and people because you may not want to distract other dogs and you may want to be slightly surreptitious about your use of them. But, you know, I have used treats with dogs waiting to run in a test and nobody's ever said anything or looked at me weirdly or I've just basically never had any issues with doing that at all. So, you know, if using treats and keeping your dog focused on you and preoccupied helps, then that's definitely something you could do in the scenario when you're waiting around. The other thing is that dogs like this... Um, because as you say, they get frustrated and bored. That's where the, the noise and the barking starts to happen. But there's nothing to say that you have to stand still either. So you can, you know, if we're talking here again about waiting in between tests or waiting for your turn to run, you can wander around. You can, you know, walk up and down a little path backwards and forwards, let your dog sniff things, um, you know, let your dog be a dog a little bit and try and keep them um, entertained in various ways that may involve using treats as well, um, or naturally occurring reinforcers. Um, but, you know, you don't have to sort of stand like you're super glued to the spot for, you know, what can be a very long time if you're waiting for a run and there are lots of people going before you. So, um, yeah. And if you if you find your dog tends to um, want to get to dogs that are very close, then move away and find your own space. There's plenty of people who, you know, need a little bit more space around them for their dog and who do move away and find their own space. So, 
you know, it may be about um, trying to figure out how you can help your dog manage the scenario by trying to see what you can do in this situation to help your dog cope with it. And if you are worried about, um, you know, rocking up at a test and seeing how one test goes, you can always offer to go and throw some dummies for a test. And that way you'll get to see exactly what happens, what the scenario is, what the situation is, what's expected from the dogs, and also be helpful as well, because always looking for dummy throwers at tests. So you'll be able to see if your dog can cope with the environment and be helpful at the same time. So that's another another thing that you can do. Um, but yeah, so so yeah, when you say um, you're wondering what you can do to help your dog be less annoyed about being still, well, there's nothing to say that you have to be still, completely still. You can kind of wander around on the lead while you're waiting for your turn to run in a test. And you can also time your arrival at the group of people who are waiting to be, um, you know, not too, not hours ahead of when your run is, for example. So don't, you know, get to the group too soon if you don't have to. So sometimes um, for tests, they send numbers, I don't know, one to 10 or something to go and run one test first and then 10 to 20 to go and run another test first. So if, for example, you are number eight of 10, you can you can think that there's going to be, you know, eight people running before you and you can take your your good sweet time, you know, ambling along there so that your dog isn't waiting for ages by the time you get there. So equally, some tests take longer than others. So for some reason, well, I mean, it's pretty obvious, really, the hunting test seems to take a long time um, with HBRs anyway. So probably because it takes so long for everyone to walk out behind the dog, and then for the judges and the dog to walk back again, and then for the next person to walk out, that all just makes it take so so much longer. So you know, with a hunting test, it's going to be probably much longer than a retrieving test between each person. So you know, there are ways that you can play this to help your dog manage the situation that it you need to know what the situation is, probably, or you just need to kind of wing it a little bit and go and have a go so that you can see what the situation is um, as well. But I hope that gives you some ideas. Um, don't be put off giving it a go and go along and watch without your dog if you don't want to give it a go with your dog to begin with. So moving on. Next question. Hold the line. So the next question, which is also sadly our last question, is from Irma. Amrit says, hi, I wonder if you might offer advice. I have a working cocker boy, just two. He's quite sensitive. He rarely blinks retrieves. I have gone right back to basics and not asked for weights. He is keen and particularly likes rabbit skin dummies, etc. Just started with steady again. I would love to do tests, but the blinking situation would prevent me. It is so unpredictable. I have lots of your courses. Any suggestions? Gratefully received. Um, Many thanks. So it later transpired as well that Irma added, I haven't done the clicker retrieve course. Is it worth going to that? So, okay, so let's talk about this. So there might be some people listening who don't understand what it means to blink retrieve. So to blink something or to blink a retrieve is to just ignore it, basically to 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 um, refuse to acknowledge that a retrieve has happened. And usually with a cocker or a HBR to go off hunting instead of going, going to get the retrieve. So... Yes, um, my first suggestion would be that you do the clicker retrieve because the clicker retrieve builds value in the behavior, which is the retrieve. So that means that it teaches the dog that it's highly reinforcing and highly um, a really great super thing for the dog to be thinking about doing to be retrieving, um, going to get that retrieve, that item. 
So I, I strongly recommend that you do that because usually the cause for blinking retrieves is the dog values hunting more than retrieving. They want to go and hunt more than they want to retrieve. So when you release them, you think to retrieve, they think, well, I don't want that. I want this. And they go off hunting and exploring the wonders of the environment, all those lovely environmental reinforcers that we talk about so often. So what you need to do is teach the dog that the retrieve is reinforcing is something that they want to consider as right up there in terms of what to do at this moment in time. So yes, do the click retrieve course. Um, you say he's quite sensitive. I don't think that is the reason um, because if you're not using any punishment or force or aversives, which includes um, no or ah uh, uh, or you know that kind of thing, then you know that that shouldn't be um, playing into blinking retrieves. There is this slightly confusing thing reading between the lines a little bit here in terms of the steadiness and you've said um you've gone right back to basics and not asked for weights so and then you say i've just started with steady again which to me suggests that you're putting in the sit and the steady and the weight again so it i'm i'm not sure if you're saying that you think there's a connection between putting in the steadiness and the weight and that having an effect on the retrieve so if you're um, asking the dog to be steady is making the dog not want to retrieve. And if you think that's happening, then it could be it could be about looking at how you are training the weight. Are you being aversive with the weight? Are you going, wait, no, uh-uh, or whatever, when you've got your dog sitting there? Um, and do you think that that is having an impact on how he feels about retrieving when you then release him to retrieve? Because that, that that could be the case. So if you are training your weight through through aversives, or even though just verbal aversives, because we've talked about this before as well, but many of the um, traditional Gundog breeds, meaning the Spaniels and working Labradors, are bred to be what we might call sensitive or what um, is generally known as, as sensitive because traditional trainers find this type of dog to be highly trainable because if they've got a dog which experiences no as you know, earth shatteringly um, scary, for example, compared to some dogs, then that dog is going to, for them, be much more trainable than a dog which is like a bull in a china shop. And you go, no. And the dog is like, well, I don't care about that. Why do I care about a word? I don't care about a word. Do you know? So if a dog, if a dog is bred to be very sensitive, they're bred to take um, even a verbal aversive as really pretty scary stuff, then that gives the traditional trainer one more tool in their toolbox. Because when that dog is at a distance from them and they go, no, that has an effect on that type of dog. Whereas if you've got a bull in a china shop sort of dog who, you know, doesn't, isn't affected by verbal aversives in the same way and you go, no, because I don't know, they don't sit to the sit whistle or something. Um, that dog's going to be like, well, I don't care about your, your no. Um, and so the traditional trainers would prefer the sensitive dog because the sensitive dog, which perceives that um, verbal aversive as an aversive is going to be more trainable for them and for the methods that they are using than the bull in a china shop sort of dog might be. I've kind of gone off on a little tangent here as I do. Um, but what I'm trying to say is, yes, if you have what you call a quite sensitive dog, that usually means that it's a dog which is quite sensitive to aversives, to no or to wait or to that kind of thing. And if you have a dog like that, and you think that that's having an impact on their interest in retrieving, which is it very well might likely be if you're if you're saying no and wait and stuff, then you need to be able to completely remove your aversives, your verbal aversives from training, um, and 
you need to kind of build up the weight using positive reinforcement and prevention, which is really important. So that means what I highly recommend for retrieves is having a tiny little tab leash. So you can just have a little half a foot long lead, um, which you keep hold of until you release the dog to go. Now, you don't want to you don't want there to be any tension in the lead, because if there's tension, if the dog can feel that you're holding them, then they will know the difference between when you're holding them and when you're not holding them. You need the dog to be holding themselves in place. You're, you're holding the lead is just if the dog should try to go. They can't go because you're holding it. So you need it to be slack, but you need to be holding the end of it. So when you're doing that, you don't need to worry about saying no or wait. or Because if the dog tries, they can't get anywhere. You're holding the lead. So if they try, they will fail. You will just ask them to sit again. It just won't work, basically. Being, not being steady doesn't work. It doesn't get you the retrieve to not be steady. So there's no need to say no or uh-uh or use aversives for this particular situation, especially because you're holding the lead. You're preventing the unwanted behavior. So, so that's, the, that's, that's the other thing that I would say. So yeah, do the clicker retrieve, build loads of value in the retrieve, really make sure you're not using any aversives, even verbal aversives, if you think that that is having an impact. Well, you know, even if you don't think it's having an impact, I think it's, you know, best, this being force-free gundle training, not to use even verbal aversives. Um, but especially if you have a dog which is sensitive, like many of the of the traditional gundle breeds are, um, then make sure that you're really taking all of that out of your training. And that means that you're going to need to be canny as a trainer, because instead of relying on verbal aversives, which come quite naturally to humans, let's be honest, um, you're going to have to think ahead of your dog and think about all the things that your dog might try to do, which you need to prevent them from doing, which is, you know, that's where hanging on to the the tab leash comes in. And this is the art of force-free gun dog training. It's trying to be one or two steps ahead of your dog, trying to think about what your dog is about to try to do, which you don't want them to do, and what you can put in place before it even happens to stop your dog from being successful in trying to do it. And, you know, the beauty of this is that after you've done this a few times, the dog stops even trying to do it because it never works. So yeah, it's just something you've got to get used to doing. And by the way, on this subject of not being steady on retrieves, oh, geez, there's something to, there's something I have to say about this in a more general way, which is that I think people get a bit lazy with this. So people, after they've been doing retrieves for, I don't know, a year, a year and a half with their dog, probably even less than that, maybe sometimes in some cases a few months, they stop holding on to the tab leash. They stop, they take out the prevention. They stop holding on to it. And I always think, why? Why have you stopped holding on to that tab? Because the dog isn't aware that you're holding it. So it's not having any effect on the dog unless the dog tries to go. If the dog tries to go, they can't go. So that's the only impact, that's the only effect it's having. So unless you're like 180% a thousand percent sure that your dog is not going to try to go. And let's be honest, we're talking here about dogs which love retrieving, which are bonkers about retrieving. And actually, I don't know any keen retriever which hasn't ever tried to run in. I just don't know of them. Now, when that happens, you know, if you're not holding on to that tab leash to prevent the dog from being successful, one of two things is going to happen. The dog is going to run in and ignore what you do or say. And, you know, if you do or say anything, and the dog is going to successfully get the retrieve and and reinforce themselves for running in, which, by the way, can be a big problem to try to undo. Or you are going to find yourself put in the position of having to go, no, ah, come back here. What are you doing? Or you're going to end up recalling your dog and risking your dog ignoring a recall because they decide they want that retrieve more than your recall or they're just not expecting the recall at that moment. And they just don't quite process it because they've never been recalled 
one second after having headed off for a retrieve. So, you know, basically what I'm trying to say is I don't understand why people stop holding tab leashes ever in training, ever. There's no reason to ever stop holding that tab leash because the dog doesn't know you're holding it. So you don't need to get your dog used to not having it held before you compete or before you work your dog. You don't need to help your dog adjust to that because the only times when the dog is going to be aware that you're holding it is if they try to run in. Then they're going to feel the tension and they're going to feel they can't do it. So it's just a prevention. And the more that you can prevent unwanted behaviors, the less they're going to happen. So if every single time in training you're holding onto that tab leash and maybe one time out of 100 retrieves because you're competing, you're not holding onto the tab leash, your dog's not going to try to run in that one time out of 100 because they're not going to know any different. Um, you know, they're not going to understand that you're not holding it. So so just keep it, just hold it, hold it slackly, hold it casually, hold it in a in a way that, you know, your hand is by your side and that you, you don't look different because you don't look like you're leaning over your dog in any weird way. Your dog can't tell whether you're holding it or not holding it, but you've got hold of it. So if the dog does try, they can't be successful. So they, that's all I would say about that. That's kind of going off a little tangent here, Emma. Um, but yeah, my advice for you is to do the click and retrieve, to make sure you really are only using positive reinforcement and force-free methods, and you're not letting those verbal aversives creep into your voice and affect your dog. Um, and I'm sure you're going to be able to work through this pretty easily. And the other cause could be as well, remember that your dog really values hunting. So you want to think about that a little bit. So one of the things that sometimes I do with spaniels that really like to hunt is we have to successfully do the retrieve first. And if you do the retrieve and you complete the retrieve, and by the way, this can be done on a long line so that you can prevent the dog from completely ignoring the retrieve and going off to hunt. You just prevent them because you're you're doing the retrieve within the length of like a 15 foot long line. So it's a pretty short retrieve. If the dog does that retrieve, they bring it back to hand, then you release them to go and hunt. So the rule the dog learns is I do the retrieve and then I get to hunt. I do the retrieve and then I get to hunt. And what happens is the hunting comes to reinforce the retrieving. So the dog is very keen to get to do that retrieve for you because then they get released to hunt and that's what they really want to do. So you, you can use the thing the dog values, which is the hunting, um, to reinforce the thing they value less, which is the retrieving. Um, I still recommend you give treats for the retrieve as per the clicker retrieve um, just before you then release the, the dog to go and hunt. So you want to do the clicker retrieve process first as it is covered on the course. And then once you've done it, you can then, um, and your, your dog's fluent outside, you can then ask the dog to do a retrieve before you release them to hunt so that the hunting becomes a reinforcer for the retrieving. So I hope that helps. Okay, everyone, that is plenty for this episode. Thanks for all your lovely questions. Um, if you have any more questions, guys, you can always email me, joe at forcefreegundog.com. Um, all right, I'm going to go take the dogs out for a wee and go to bed now. Um, so I will talk to you all next time. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line.